time, same station. There is nothing wrong with your system. We are attempting to decalcify your third eye. Welcome to the Third Eye High Podcast. We deal with a higher consciousness or flyer culture. And I'm your host, JF Bay. I'm just here to shine my light your way to help you find your light switch and keep your light lit. As we continue on the book report series, get your pen and pads out, roll you up something, pour you up your cup of sea moss, get your cup of tea, whatever you need to get your focus right. And we are attempting to tap into that higher learning chamber, right? And we're going to qualify another book of scholarship, right? Here at the Third Eye High podcast in this book report series, uh, I just highlight some key literature that I encourage you add to your libraries, right? So this next installment of the book report series, it's a book called Warring for America. Warring for America, Cultural Contests in the Era of 1812. Powerful, powerful book. And if you've been following the Book Report series on the podcast, uh, we've been covering a lot of uh, books that uncover this true American story, right? Because uh, so-called American history is the true so-called Black history, which is truly the indigenous American history. Because the true Americans are our people, right? We were here before Columbus and anybody showed up to the land that was already called America. And it wasn't named after Amerigo Vespucci. All of that is lies that they told to hide the fact that they colonized the land where people were already inhabiting the land. And they created the story of them stealing you from another land when this is the motherland. Because, remember, all of this was all connected. And you were indigenous to the entire landmass. So, each book that I qualify, I qualify with the scholarship. Because I'm trying to get us to put our minds in the context of this institution of slavery to understand it. We deal with this facts over feelings. Not to argue, to debate whether it took place or how many people were, you know, stolen from such place, or it's more of they didn't steal you from a land, they stole the land from you. And this is why I qualify this particular book, because it's called Warring for America. So who were fighting for America? Not like they're fighting like American pride, like they're defending America, but in fact, there were many other nations fighting to divide up the land. See, if you look at a lot of the old maps, they're going to show you that, you know, outside of the so-called 13 colonies, the British colonies, the other lands, which would later become the 50 states called the United States, these lands were named after other countries. So you might go over to Louisiana, this was a Spanish territory and this and that. So different lands and the French, right? And this is why a lot of people in Louisiana speak French, right? A lot of this stuff was the mixing of these different particular nations that were trying to slice up the land, henceforth warring for America. So these people that later now are calling themselves the original Americans, 
could have not been. Because if you were an American, why would you be fighting for the land? Why would you be fighting to stake claim of the land if you're already <laughs> the original inhabitant of the land? Henceforth, the story of the pilgrim and the Indians. Because they were once the pilgrims, right? The settlers, the people who showed up to a land that was foreign to them. And then you were the Indian. And then they became the pilgrim and the Indian. Because <laughs> they had something called the $5 Indian, where, you know, all of these so-called pale pale-faced pale nations, pale-skinned nations, these people could pay a $5 premium and they could be added on to the roles of an Indian tribe. Henceforth, later, when a lot of the uh, tribes would get uh, treaty endowments and they would get land reservations, many of these so-called whites claimed to be Indians. <laughs> so they, they told you they was the pilgrims and then <laughs> they said they was the pilgrim and the Indians. Do you see how they, they, they convoluted the story of history? So we looking at this upside down and inside out and we, we're just angry and we're just dismissive of uh, historical accounts. But salute to a lot of these great authors that presented these works where a lot of the records were hidden and buried and destroyed. Because many of the census records were destroyed, right? There was a fire in... Uh, the beginning of the 1800s excuse me uh 1895 there was a fire where they destroyed a lot of the census records and previous to the that fire many of the records uh recorded our people as free people actually free land owning people so many of our lands were confiscated and we were uh deemed to be so-called slaves or ex-slaves and a lot of these laws in, in the states, slaves couldn't own property. <laughs> so, so a lot of our lands were stolen from us by the government by way of misclassifying. And this is why they gave us so many different names. Negro, colored, mulatto, Afro-American. All, all of this stuff was, was by design because they were further hiding the truth. But you know how a lie goes. In order to tell one lie, you got to tell a few more to cover up that lie. So they never would address the original inhabitants of the land. They just kept saying you was from somewhere else. Webster's Merriam Dictionary, 1878, the original definition for American. The copper colored races here before Columbus arrived. Later changed to the descendants of Europeans. They traded places with you. But this book give some disturbing accounts of what really was taking place on the land. So let's get into one of these chapters here. Salute to everybody tuning in to the Third Eye High podcast. This is the book report series, and we will be reviewing a book called Warring for America, the cultural contest in the era of 1812 by Nicole uh, Estes and Frederica J. Tutti. They're the editors of this book. And there's a chapter I want to highlight. A particular chapter. Uh, this chapter, Conceptual Traffic. Conceptual Traffic. That's a powerful title. Conceptual Traffic. The Atlantic Slave Trade and the War 
of 1812. See, when you study the War of 1812, they were fighting so-called Indian tribes, and they were fighting Britain and all this stuff, but they were really fighting our people from all sides, that many of them became prisoners of war, POWs, that later you just called slaves. But the original term slave refers to the Slav, Slavic people, pale white skin that were enslaved. And then that term just been blanketed all through history. And when you say the word slave, your mind is automatically transported to a slave movie <laughs> that was produced here in America. In fact, one of the, the, the highest honors, one of the movies that got the highest honors was, was the, uh, the Birth of a Nation, the original movie, not the one with, uh, with Nate Parker, you know, same title. But the birth of a nation, uh, what is it, W.C. Fields, Birth of a Nation, this uh, movie was actually shown in the White House, and it, and it received the presidential seal. It's one of the only movies ever. And what was the movie Birth of a Nation? Birth of a Nation was like a, a satire movie, but it was like what the country would have looked like if the South would have won the Civil War. But we're going to go into that, because a lot of people say, well, the North was against war, I meant slavery, and the South was for it. But it was all a business move. And that war was inevitable because our people were fighting it. Do you understand? The war wouldn't have been won if we didn't enlist in the service to fight it. Pay attention. Our people are significant all through history. So it's no such thing as black history. American history is really the indigenous people history. This shit's our history, which is really world history. Henceforth, the title of the book, Warring for America. See, all of these people that later claimed to be Americans, they always fighting to cut up your land <laughs> and to bury the history that you ever existed. Interesting stuff. So let's get into this chapter. Conceptual Traffic, the Atlantic Slave Trade and the War of 1812 by Christian Muller. Take the American slave trade which we are told by the papers is especially prosperous just now. In several states, this trade is a chief source of wealth. It is called, in contradiction to the foreign slave trade, the internal slave trade. See, pay attention, they perpetrated this Atlantic slave trade where you know we, we keep thinking that they kept going back and forth from Africa, stealing people and bringing them to a new land. But they, they masked this internal trade. See, the biggest uh, trick they pulled on us when they got us in history class and they start showing us all these funny maps. See, the older maps hide the truth. See, if you look at a lot of the older maps that, you know, predate showing the 50 states of the United States map, that kind of shit that they, you know, pimped on us in school, that was by design. That was to push the propaganda and to basically brainwash us. But the older maps that predate, you know, the, the, the uniting of the 50 states, it shows outside of the 13 colonies that these other states that would later be a part of the 50, they were named after other countries. So if someone's writing a, a book about a war that's happening in the country, you automatically start to look at that globe and you think they fighting this war on the other side of the world when they was fighting all this war in America. And when they say war for America and they're fighting these other nations, these other nations were trying to stake claim to the land and set up colonies too. 
Henceforth, they had the Spanish colonies, the, the British colonies, all this, you know, so all of this stuff is in play. And I encourage you to start to look at some of these older maps because they mention empires. So what are the empires are they talking about? Remember the new world, the old world. We're talking about a lot of the Moorish empires that they buried. So if they buried the Moorish empires, they have to bury the Moorish bloodline, the Moorish people. Henceforth, they stopped calling people Moors, referring to them as the Moors, and later start to call them Blackamoors. And then they cut off the title Moor and just started to call them Black. This is all by design, but it never referred to you as being a person of Black skin. That was on purpose, to disenfranchise you, to disinherit you from your vast estate. Let's get into it internal slave trade it is probably called so too in order to divert from in the horror with which the foreign slave trade is contemplated that trade has long since been denounced by this government as piracy it has been denounced with burning words from the high places of nations as an excrabable traffic to arrest it and to put an end to it, this nation keeps a squadron at immense cost on the coast of Africa. So they're saying that America, remember, they, we, we abolished slavery. Remember 1804, we stopped in the importation of Africans into America. But pay attention to the context. So they're saying that America was out in the front and, you know, we were stopping ships from coming in with people and all this and all that shit was propaganda. So pay attention. If I shipped you or I imported you from somewhere outside of the colony, you came from another country. See what's going on? But you still was in America. But I said you came from another country. Because remember, America was just classified as the 13 colonies, i.e. only 13 states. See, remember, 1804, the Louisiana Purchase and all the other stuff where they gave the land, where they wouldn't give the land, remember Napoleon and all the other bullshit, where now Louisiana, after Louisiana Purchase, that side of the country now becomes a part of this so-called union they were creating. So now, what about the people post the Louisiana Purchase that lived in Louisiana that were already free people? That was considered another country. Do you see what's going on? So let's, let's get back. Everywhere in this country, it is safe to speak of this foreign slave trade as a most inhumane traffic, opposed alike to the laws of God and of man. The duty to ex expiate and destroy it is admitted even by our doctors of divinity. In order to put an end to it, some of these last has consented to their colored brethren, nominally free, should leave this country and establish themselves on the west coast of Africa. It is, however, a notable fact that while so much excoration is poured out by the Americans upon all those engaged in foreign slave trade, the men engaged in the slave trade between, between the states without condemnation and their business is deemed honorable. So pay attention. They push this propaganda that, you know, we're standing up for, for this 
horrible institution and we want to put an end to this institution of slavery stop the importation of people coming from Africa to the, to the Americas but then they turned a blind eye to the shipping of so-called people within the colonies and outside of the colonies i.e. moving people around America that wasn't living in the colonies so I could steal somebody from a free land and bring them to one of the colonies that was just business you were a successful businessman if you did so. In fact, the, gover the government supported it, pushed laws to back it. So when we look at this institution of slavery, it's not like, yo, a group of white men just said, we gonna do this shit. This was a government project. Did you, do you understand? We, we keep saying that like, yo, we, we looking at these, these so-called white people and they had never made, made it right for slavery when it's like, we're not looking at this administration. We're not looking at the government to say, wait a minute. The government in itself enforced the institution. They didn't stop it. They, wait till I get further in this chapter and it's going to show you that America was perpetrating long in this slave trade than what we think. And when I say America, see, it throws a, a, a black eye on the continent because these people that were partaking in the slave trade were not Americans. Remember, these people were so-called Europeans that later became Americans. Henceforth, when they became white, the Naturalization Act of 1790, the Naturalization Act of 1870, where they became white by way of taking an oath and a pledge to become a so-called said U.S. citizen. You see what's going on? And we know there's 55 signers of the so-called uh, Constitution and more than half of them so-called own slaves, but they own black and white slaves. Remember, we're talking about this, these bonding companies that leased out human labor of any kind because they were kidnapping humans and just putting them into this institution and they didn't care where the humans came from. See, they got us keep thinking that it was just this African thing going on when, yeah, they were stealing a lot of people from Sierra Leone and a lot of people uh, from the continent got paid from that exchange. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about the nations that enforced it, that allowed it to happen, but they didn't run, a, run off all, all of Africa and start stealing people. Nope. If you look at the, the, the coast of Sierra Leone, it's, it's, it's very on the outside, it's on the tip, which means they didn't get inside of Africa to start doing it. In fact, many of these uh, people that came from uh, these outer parts of Africa, a lot of them came as apprentices, came as indentured servants, came as contracted workers, because this shit was a business. It later became and morphed into something sinister as these faulty contracts that now locked you into a lifetime of servitude. But let's continue. See, I like to I like to set the premise while we're reading so I can, you know, get you to think in broad layers, right? To start looking at this in multiple perspectives. Facts over feelings, if you will. Everywhere in this country, it is safe to speak of this foreign slave trade, right? And it says that, uh, it is, however, a notable fact that while so much excoriation is poured out by the Americans upon all those engaged in the foreign slave trade, the men engaged in the slave trade between the states pass without condemnation and their business is deemed honorable. 
Frederick Douglass, the meaning of July 4th for the Negro in 1852. This is a uh, uh, an excerpt from a, a speech given by Frederick Douglass. And he's not off the hook either, right? Because they used Frederick Douglass as a pawn too. What am I talking about? Okay, so the Freedmen's Bureau, right? The Freedmen's Bureau, we went over that. Please subscribe to the podcast. Go back to the earlier books in the book report series. I reviewed a book of the 40 Acres and a Mule that talks about the setup of the Freedmen's Bureau. Now, the Freedmen's Bureau was the office set up that was supposed to, you know, give us that 40 acres and a mule, all that stuff during Reconstruction. They were supposed to put together all the shit they destroyed, a people, a nation of people, right? And their livelihood, etc. So now, Frederick Douglass uh, becomes the president of the Freedmen's Bank. So wait a minute, we had a Freedmen's Bank? Right, so millions of our people that so-called wasn't getting paid during slavery, they all had money. They had something called freedom dues. This was them working because many of them were contracted. They're hiding the fact that that was taking place. And a lot of people that had top-notch skills, they had to be paid. Because remember, they would lease your labor from plantation to plantation. That wasn't by force. They had to contract you into this thing. It, it, It became that when they would steal people and fraudulently bind people to contracts that they didn't enter into. See, all of that was just funny business going on. So the Freedmen's Bureau sets up this Freedmen's Bank where a lot of our people deposited our money. And we thought our money was insured by the government. See where I'm going with this. So now they always use a token black to get us to muster our confidence up put our confidence and our faith into someone that looks like us. He wouldn't sell us out. He's one of us. So Frederick Douglass, the guy that we keep supporting all through Black History Month and all that shit, and they keep throwing you him. And of course, right, he ends up marrying a white woman at the end of his life. But here no there, right? But Frederick Douglass becomes the president of the Freedmen's Bank. And they only made him the president to ensure that people would keep depositing their money into this bank they thought was insured by the government. So now, right before the bank collapsed, Frederick Douglass says, I'm going to put a a hundred thousand of my own dollars into this bank to show you that I believe in it so much so I'm going to invest everything I have into the bank, which he really didn't. But that was the propaganda they pushed to our people so we would have confidence in pouring our life savings into this Freedmen's Bank. So when the Freedmen's Bureau closed several years later after slavery, we never got the 40 acres and a mule. Everybody's money was gone, stolen, disappeared. And thousands of our people tried to lay claim to their people's money that they deposited in these banks they thought was federally insured and the government stalled them, stalled them. This is aside from reparations. They stole our hard-earned fucking money and never compensated the people still to this day and they use frederick Douglass to swindle our people out of their life savings put a pen in that so let's get back to this wonderful speech of frederick Douglass. <laughs> see because they'll hold you up in high regard and not to say that he didn't do great works so i'm not slandering the brother but i'm selling you i'm showing you how they'll hold us up in one regard then use us to sell out our people and then throw us back to the people Look what they did to Bill Cosby. They held him up in such high regard. And then Bill, Bill Cosby went on a, a rant going around the country talking about how fucked up black people were. 
And then what happened? He catches his case and they unsyndicate all his shows and tear down his legacy and throw him back to his people. <laughs> they return a conviction after he was convicted for some shit that wasn't even a crime because those chicks was going to the party. And he was allowed to do it for so many years, just like Harvey Weinstein. But they're always going to give you a bad guy to hide the fact that their institution is still taking place. Big facts. We're getting back to it. Frederick Douglass's speech, the meaning of July 4th for the Negro in 1852. When Frederick Douglass was invited to deliver a 4th of July oration to the Rochester ladies, anti-slavery sewing society in 19 in 1852 he famously spoke about the shame rather than the glory of the national anniversary although his speech was supposed to be was supposed to celebrate the day of making the political freedom of the american people douglas took to the opportunity to highlight the hypocrisy of jubilee in this country that still practiced slavery and the trade in human beings what to the American slave is your 4th of July? He asked and then answered, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. At that very moment, Douglas exclaimed, the United States was guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than any nation leading to great national inconsistencies. In America's understanding of freedom, the first uh, hypocritical, hypocritical practice was the continued existence of slavery, the great sin and shame of America under the Republic. The second was the United States maintained at immense cost a naval unit dedicated to suppressing the foreign slave trade, while it allowed the international slave trade to flourish excuse me, why it allowed the internal slave trade to flourish. On that day in Rochester, Douglas exhorted his listeners to act to abolish the execrable traffic of all slave markets, to challenge the recent Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and to extinguish any remaining tolerance for slavery in the land that especially on Independence Day prided itself on principles of justice, liberty, and humanity. Seemingly contrasting the deauthorization excused practices of foreign slave trade during the so-called honorable internal trade and in enslaved people. Douglas, in fact, implied that the activities were one and the same. The latter had merely been renamed and reconceptualized to divert it from the horror of the former. When Douglas spoke to the Rochester abolitionists in 1852, both the foreign and domestic trade enslaved persons persisted in the United States. Enslaved foreign laborers filtered through the nation's southern and western borders, and domestic ones were sent from the upper south to the markets in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. In his speech, Douglas noted, that the federal legislation of March 2nd, 1807, which had outlawed the importation of enslaved Africans after January 1st, 1808, effectively split the concept of the slave trade into two different spheres, the foreign 
and the internal or American slave trade. The 1807 law did not ban the traffic of slavery outright. The legislation signed by Thomas Jefferson made it unlawful to import or bring into the United States or the territories thereof from any foreign kingdom. What are they talking about? Didn't I tell you about the Moorish kingdoms that they destroyed when they created this concept they, they're trying to put together called these United States? So remember the 13 colonies. So if you came from somewhere outside of 13 colonies, that might be somebody's kingdom. Now, if you look at the older maps, it's going to show you these Moorish kingdoms, these Spanish empires and all that. When remember Spain, before it was called Spain, it was called Al-Andalus and it was ruled by the Moors for 800 years. Our people. See, they got to keep separating the people from the land. This war for America, they were fighting your ancestors to hide their history and then make you this descendant of a slave taken from a land where you were never taken. All of these accounts, they show these people they took from Africa. They were taking 60, 70 people on a ship at a time. This shit didn't happen the way they telling you. There's no uh, historical account of a ship with people stacked like sardines dealing with our people that didn't happen that's why all the depictions they show you are paintings where's a photograph keep in mind remember if your property that's your commodity right remember it's your business so many of the people would have died making that trip if they were packed to that capacity that makes no sense for you to spend all this money for this trip and then your 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 product shows up and, and can't produce people will be dead how do we prove this a lot of the ships that came from england that brought white slaves there was one particular ship 1500 people and 1400 of them died that's coming from europe to america make it make sense now, i'm not saying that they didn't take people from africa but i'm saying they didn't take millions of people you was already on the land that's the hustle to, to disconnect you from your inheritance on this land. So they're speaking of these kingdoms. So they're saying that United States or territories, therefore, from any foreign kingdom, place, or country, see, or country, see, each of the states were their own countries. That's the part we can't wrap our heads around. If you look at the old maps, it'll show you that. That's why a lot of the states have their own embassies, Texas. Texas got one of the largest embassies. They got an embassy like it's its own country. Right. Because remember, each state has their own constitution. Did you know that? Did you know that there's two constitutions? The federal constitution and each of the 50 states have their own constitutions that read identical. See, I was showing this to a lot of people, helping people um, obtain their religious exemptions. Because I said, did you know that they're violating the supremacy clause in the constitution? Say, what? What you talking about, brother? The supremacy clause. I've never heard of that. The supremacy clause is like a breach of contract, which says that the, the federal constitution trumps the state's constitution, but only if the federal constitution is abiding by what the state's constitution say, meaning the federal constitution can't put out a law that goes against the rights of the state's constitution, i.e. they can't violate your first amendment right, your right to practice your religion, and then say you gotta take a vaccine. 
kick people's ass with that constitution. You heard? <laughs> and all I did was use the Bible to do it. But I'm showing you the competence of understanding history because history and law goes together. So now the federal constitution trumps the state's constitution, but only when it doesn't contravene, if it doesn't violate what the state's constitution says. And once it violates it, whatever mandate they putting out is null and void on its fucking face. Big facts. I ain't no, no lawyer. I ain't go to law school. Nothing. I'm just a kid that loves to understand true history. And I was able to help 350 people obtain religious exemptions successfully. Police officers, teachers, people that worked for the government, people that worked for the pharmacy, people that worked for the airport, people that flew on the planes. I've helped all these people from all walks of life. And I just used the Constitution and the Bible to do it. I ain't nobody special. I'm just looking at this shit with a spiritual sight. That's what they fear. They fear the people truly getting competent of what the fuck is going on. Because once you know what's going on, you understand that that constitution. Now, the constitution is a contract with we the people. And who has to enforce the contract? Those fucking bums that we keep electing in these seats. But if you don't know the role of your elected officials... They could piss on the Constitution, right? Push a mandate, all this shit that's illegal, and it'll it'll seem lawful like a motherfucker. And they're not going to let up with the bullshit they're pulling off on the people because it's all about competence. Thomas Jefferson said, a nation that expects to be ignorant and free can never, ever be. See, the people got to be in the know, man. See... One thing about when Trump was in office, people was on their toes. They was researching everything this nigga was saying because they, they all were trying to be on his back looking for him to fall. Now you got the Zoom call president in there, this, this senile dude, and all kind of shit is running crazy in the country and nobody cares because the people are back to being dumbed down. They don't care about policy. They don't care about what's being pushed. They not looking at none of the bills that's being passed. None of this shit is being enacted. Or how fraudulently they're using this emergency use authorization shit to piss on the Constitution. And what they say, they're going to end this thing in May? That's what they told us? But yet, the vaccine companies are getting uh, full authorization use and they're, they're now coming out with a flu slash COVID vaccine. They already just came out with the flu slash COVID test. All this shit is bogus. But if the people don't check this, they just going to keep telling the lie. But let's get back to this because I'm showing you the parallel between history then and history now. So if you came from any other place outside the colonies, this is like the slave trade. This is like foreign, right? So now foreign kingdoms, place or country, any Negro, mulatto, or person of color. Does that make sense? Why, why, why don't they just say Africans? Because you took niggas from Africa. But why are they talking about three different classes of people that got the same skin color? Because this shit was about class. It's all a hustle. So I could just call you an African, but that don't mean I took you from Africa. You might be a free person living outside of the colonies, and now I say this is my nigga from Africa. See, see how they perpetrated the fraud? Continuing on. Interesting shit. So it says, uh, 
foreign kingdom, place or country, any Negro, mulatto or person of color with intent to hold, sell or dispose of such as a slave, but instead banned the introduction of specific class of persons. Instead banned the introduction of a specific class of persons. Any Negro, mulatto or person of color for a specific purpose with intent to hold, sell, or dispose of such as a slave for a specific place, any foreign kingdom, place, or country. Gotta look at those older maps to the, to the United States. Remember, the United States. Now keep in mind, in the 1800s, it wasn't 50 United States. This didn't happen until after the Louisiana Purchase, where the other half of the country now becomes part of the Union. In 1808, therefore, the previously undifferentiated concept of slave trade became subject to the scrutiny of who, how, and where. Who, how, and where. See, it was classified business if you could doctor up the language. Where I, I ain't just go to Africa and steal some people. This, this person was free or he was a fugitive from this land and I brought him back to my land. And that's all legal. And when you were transported, you didn't actually get on a ship. But if I wrote it this way, historically, that's how you see it. And that's why they kept showing us these slave movies. But I keep saying to somebody, hashtag, where are the slave ships? I started that hashtag in 2016. The artist B.O.B. since ran with that because it went viral. I didn't get the viral credit, but it went viral. But it's a lot of stuff I put down that people just took off and ran with it. But I just kept going, putting down the scholarship. But I, I said that because I was serious. Hashtag, where are the slave ships? Because ironically, all of the slave ships have been destroyed. If you research, burnt, mysteriously, sunk. And the only so-called slave ship they have is a replica in Baltimore. Why do you got a replica? Why you got to remake a ship if all of these ships were in such great condition? That made thousands of trips bringing millions of people back and forth from Africa, allegedly. Wouldn't the ships be in great condition? Wouldn't they want to photograph those ships and put those pictures in the museum? Why haven't you seen a picture of these Africans crammed on a ship like sardines? Find me one. Send it to my email. Thirdeyehigh at gmail.com. I guarantee you, you're not going to be able to find one. Be clear. I'm not talking about a, 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 a picture of a painting. I'm talking about an actual live picture that show real people because you can't find one. That shit was all made up. Yeah, they bought some people on some ships. There were some trips. You talking about 60, 70, 80 people at a time. There was not no thousands of people on no goddamn ship cramped like sardines. That was the, they showed you the Amistad and all that. Remember, this, this stuff was to be planted in the psyche of our people so they can perpetrate the fraud to hide how they participated in slavery, how they enforced it. We're talking about a government plan. Not some just bunch of fucking white people to just say, we, we want to have slaves. Nah, this was a government institution. And the government was interfering with these property owners because many of them had the bag where they could buy judges and politicians and whole assemblies and councilmen, etc. And votes. Going on to say, where are we? Uh, here we go. Okay. In 1804, therefore, the previously undifferentiated concept of slave trade, right? 
Now, the result was a de facto legalization of all trade, and they did not qualify under the foreign ban. To Douglas's point, this conceptual redefinition enabled the condoning of one kind of trade because of the condemnation of the other. And he highlighted this consequence by echoing the language used by abolitionists since the first decades of the 19th century. For although the text of 1807 acts to prohibit the importation of slaves referred to the importation and sale of enslaved Africans. See, on the books, it looked like we not stealing people from Africa. And then all I gotta do is say, he's not African, he's a Negro, he's a mulatto. <laughs> do you see what's going on? And then all these different names came about. He's my colored. So they further hid the institution by just keep reclassifying the people and further putting them into these fraudulent contracts, whether they were free or not. Because you, you, were, you were deemed a slave based on your description, right? Because remember, slaves was of all color. But once they started just enslaving our people, now they looked at anybody with the same skin color, that nigga could be potential property. He, you know what I'm saying? He, he's an op. You was rolling around and you were free. A lot of times they wouldn't honor your freedom papers. Nah, that's bullshit. And they would find a judge to say, yeah, those papers are fake. Even if you might have paid to buy your freedom, they were not honoring it. Because now it was, it was, it was like it's open season on a particular group of people. And if more of us are on the land than them, then you got slaves anywhere you went. Because all you had to do was classify them as such even if they were free people. So the, the text of the 1807 Act prohibit the importation of slaves referred to the importation and sale of enslaved Africans as trade or businesses. Abolitionists in the United States and Britain referred to their sale not as trade, but as traffic, nefarious traffic, inhumane traffic, and horrid traffic. Douglas's words amplified his message that the United States criminalization of the slave trade changed the ways in which the trade was conceptualized, how it was commonly understood by promoters and opponents alike, rather than how it was predict how it was practices practiced, for example, when the U.S. Congress adjusted the 1807 Act in 1819 and 1820, it declared that any citizen caught participating in the trade shall be adjudged to be a pirate. Pirates, after all, were merely those who traded without authorization, rather than those who committed criminal acts per se. Now, you remember the movie Pirates of the Caribbean? They were talking about the Moors, the Corsairs, those who, who rode on little red ships that they called Corvettes. We had these fast little ships and we would ride up to these so-called white ships or so-called American ships and we would seize these white sailors and we would enslave them. Henceforth, the Barbary slave trade. So if they ships were if their ships were being seized cruising around in Africa, how the hell was they in Africa cruising around trying to steal some Africans? Make it make sense. So that Pirates of the Caribbean thing, they were talking about the Moorish pirates. Now, when they would say pirates, they weren't talking about criminals per se. They just saying you was you, you was uh, taking place in, 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 in the exportation or the selling of people 
and you didn't have authorization by certain people that was doing the same shit. <laughs> Pot calling the kettle black. Goes on to say, furthermore, piracy explicitly pertained to the activities of robbery and kidnapping on the high seas. See? Not on the turnpikes of Virginia or the waterways of Mississippi. So what we're saying, you could be transported, but you don't have to be on a ship, right? I could take you in a wagon, move you from one state to another, or move you from a state that's outside of the colony. And all of that shit was still fair game. So they would take free people, our people that were free on a land that wasn't even a state at the time, just free land, and maybe... A person wanted to extend their colony or extend their plantation. So they would start to steal people that were freely on the bordering states outside of the colonies. So when they perpetrated this, we're, we're going to stop the importation of slaves from Africa. They, in fact, revved up this internal slave trade going on within the states. Henceforth, the title of the book, they were warring for America. They were cutting up the indigenous people land and start renaming it for themselves. For Douglas, the difference was more conceptual than material, a rhetorical slight of the hand that turned some traders into traffickers, while leaving others as honorable businessmen. Douglas's words for from July 1852 indict not only the hypocrisies of the 1776, 1807, and 1850, but also the system of thinking that assigned horror and outrage to the foreign trade and enslaved Africans, which had long since been reconfigured as a military rather than moral concern, while looking upon the business of the American slave trade as a source of national pride and prosperity. You had pride for owning humans because they were considered property, but we're talking about of any color. They're talking about just the institution of free labor, which built this country. And they don't want to talk about reparations, really, when all your Fortune 500 companies got their wealth off the backs of our ancestors. The same actions in Douglas's opinion were called trade on the one hand and traffic on the other. Trade, the processes of exchanging people as goods has been an, an important, even dominating analytic in the histories of Atlantic slavery and its abolition. It has also been one of the main themes for histories of the War of 1812, so often framed as a transatlantic disagreement over sovereignty summarized by the slogan, free ships make free goods. Pay attention to that line. Free ships make free goods. Although understanding of these two signals, signal events in the early 19th century, Anglo-America, American would focus on trade that are rarely considered in relation to each other. Indeed, one scholar has written that the slave trade was an additional abate minor issue in the War of 1812, and another explained that slavery faded from America's political consciousness. Between 1808 and 1819, although the rapid expansion of the domestic slave trade inside the country, right, and the persistence of a clandestine international trade 
indicate that it did not fade from the country's economic consciousness. Everybody was getting the bag. Furthermore, the reported uh, reduction in transatlantic trade, usually, uh, usually taken as a consequence of the Napoleonic Wars of the War of 1812, as well as a decrease in the total number of enslaved Africans imported to the Americas after 1807, presumably owing only to the abolition of the United Kingdom and the United States, are not often believed to share influence or consequences, nor are they seen as components of the wider geopolitical and economic currents of the early 19th century. Shifts in the representation and conceptualization of trade during the period have long caused these two histories unnecessarily to stand apart from each other. Rhetorical and material gaps have thus limited scholars' ability to see the connection between the Atlantic slavery and the War of 1812. Research the War of 1812 because that's when they was cutting up our land, that's when they was divvying up and hiding the old empires and the heirs of the empire. And they were reclassifying the people and now perpetrating. We just took a group of these niggas from Africa and ain't none of them from the land. So they have no claim to the land. And then they just kept pushing that narrative all through time. That's why they keep showing us the slavery movies. How many movies you seen on the Holocaust? I guarantee you they got more movies on, <laughs> on American slavery than they do the Holocaust. <laughs> but yet... They compensated the descendants of the Holocaust and compensated none of our people. In fact, the only people that were compensated after slavery were the slave masters, compensated $150 per slave from this government. Make that make sense. Continuing on. Where we at? Where we at? Uh, okay. Uh, building on David uh, Elitis' call to locate abolition within the fundamental restructuring of the Atlantic slave system that occurred in the last century of their existence. A better understanding of wartime trade agreements and the relation issues of neutrality, neutrality and contraband, as well as more careful attention to the conceptual dis, uh, desegregation of the foreign trade from the internal slave trade between the states are necessary to challenge and amend the heretofore isolated narratives of trade and war in the early U.S. history. To be clear, this is a suggestive rather than a conclusive argument, and there is much work theoretical and empirical left to be done. Nonetheless, contemporary ideologies of free trade and a patriotism underscored by revolutionary nostalgia has obscured the significance of the slave trade to the War of 1812. And in the 20th and 21st century, nation-centered histories have imposed limits that conceal transnational commercial networks. French shipping records can help illuminate the impact of the Atlantic trade and on U.S. history during this time by providing indications of what U.S. records and histories have been missing. Documenting contraband and illicit activities, what Lawrence A. Perkins calls the problem of secrecy. In the surviving archive 
is difficult. However, especially when coupled with the changing representations of trade at the time. But connections uh, hitherto unseen between neutrality disagreements, slavery, early 19th century, the U.S.-French commerce, and the history of the War of 1812 demonstrate that one kind of trade was not hived from the other. For if we continue to think of the early 19th century, transatlantic commerce as structured by who, how, and where, one as business and the other as piracy, and we will continue to miss the histories hidden by in Douglas's words, a system began in the event in, in the advice supported in pride and perpetuated in cruelty. We're gonna get to something right here. I know it sounds like a lot to take in, but when you listen to this back, it's gonna make more sense. So now let's look at this portion of free trade. So now they were talking about how people were masking this institution of slavery and make it look like they was fighting to stop it. When in fact, they was helping it go on and they were pushing it further now on one group of people that now they could say all these niggas came from Africa. So now contemporaries tended to understand the War of 1812 through the restrictions of transatlantic trade. Indeed, in 1807, there were two uh, twin attempts to restrict transatlantic trade. On the one hand, the British orders and the council, January 7th and November 11th, and the U.S. Embargo Act on December 22nd. And the other, the British Act for the Abolition of the Slave Trade, March 25th, and the U.S. Act to Prohibit the Importation of Slaves on March 2nd. The Orders and Council and Embargo Act are understood to apply directly to the conditions of restricted transatlantic trade resulting from the Napoleonic Wars, whereas the Abolition Acts resulted, at least in part, from a surprising Anglo-American anti-slavery movement. Although all these measures are fundamentally trade restrictions, rarely are they considered as such. The Orders and Council and Embargo Act are usually seen in the light of deteriorating U.S.-U.K. diplomatic and economic relations in the lead-up to the War of 1812, whereas the slave trade laws are often interpreted and celebrated as transatlantic benevolence, unconnected to increasingly restrictive political and economic policies. Because of their own commonalities, both the concepts trade and restriction are profitable sites for investigating links between the War of 1812 and Atlantic slavery. To understand the meaning of trade and the period is important to analyze the familiar nationalist claim to neutrality, that free ships make free goods, as well as to examine the ways in which ships and goods exceeded national networks during the early 19th century. In order to negotiate the terms of the Atlantic trade in 1794, the United States and Great Britain signed the Treaty of Amity and Commerce and Navigation, or J-Treaty. All of this ties to the Moors, which established the practice of neutrality between the two countries. It stated that as long as a country was not the enemy of aiding the enemy, its commerce would be unaffected by declarations of war, specifically that of 17, 
1893 between Great Britain and France. Furthermore, the treaty outlined exactly which items constituted just objects of, of confiscation, including gunpowder, uh, salt, salt pelter, and timber for shipbuilding. Yet although the U.S. neutrality remained in effect at the turn of the 19th century, British ships nonetheless routinely boarded and seized U.S. vessels that crossed the Atlantic, whether or not they were carrying contraband items. In the century's first decade, effects of the war between France and Britain rippled across the Atlantic. Now we talking about this war between America and Britain, and we were fighting for their independence. Oh, man. Britain was saying, y'all niggas agreed to stop slavery, but y'all still keeping it going. How are they doing it? Let's pay attention to this part. Goes on to say, In the century's first decade, effects of the war between France and Britain rippled across the Atlantic as both European powers extended their trade restrictions to American ships, although the United States was technically a neutral party. When Britain effectively established a blockade of Napoleonic uh, Europe with its orders and council of January and November 1807, disrupting U.S. trade as well, Jefferson responded in December with the U.S. Embargo Act, prohibiting all U.S. ships from departing for foreign ports and intensifying the transatlantic restrictions. The British Orders and Council on 1809, as well as the U.S. non Intercourse Act of 1809 prohibiting U.S. ships to, Brit to British and French ports continued the restrictive trend. As a result, the period in 1783 to 1815 was characterized by the development of networks for the neutral carrying trade, as well for contraband and privateering. The carrying trade had originally developed as a way for neutral U.S. merchants to exploit France's inability to truck with its uh, Caribbean colonies during the late 18th century. Eventually, it fostered other commercial networks designed to outwit embargoes, blockades, and bans. The interests were not strictly of one nation or another, but were often spread across Atlantic in transnational webs of families' extended relations. Furthermore, inconsistent uh, definitions of citizenship often made it difficult to pinpoint a person's nationality. This is key. The intricacies of these transatlantic networks created opportunities for trade, even when technically there were none. In 1804, British abolitionist and jurist James Stevens, who would later framed the 1807 Orders and Council, as well as William uh, Wilberforce's Abolition of the Slave Trade Act, wrote about the dangers of the neutral carrying trade. In the pamphlet he, uh, he published anonymously, War in Disguise, or the Frauds of the Neutral Flags. Pay attention to this. The Frauds of the Neutral Flags in 1805. Stephen called the abolition of the neutral carrying trade which he claimed was strengthening Britain's armies, excuse me, Britain's enemies in the first in the first fight against Napoleon. The United States had been benefiting from its neutrality at Britain's expense, even 
ever since the signing of the Jay Treaty, when the ports of the French islands were speedily crowded with their vessels. Of course, the cargoes they received there, as well as those they delivered, were all declared by their papers to be neutral property. But when instead of rum and molasses, the ordinarily an ample exchange in the West Indies markets for the provisions and lumber of America, the neutral ships, ship owners pretended to have acquired in barter for those cheap and bulky commodities, full cargoes of sugar and coffee. It was evident that the flag of the United States was for the most part used to protect the property of the French planter, not of the American merchant. In stating that the U.S. flag protected French rather than American property, Stephen implied that the neutral trade not only served France instead of the U.S. interests, but also supported the motor of the transatlantic slavery. Pay attention. The plantation economy, in exchange for nothing more than cheap and bulky commodities, U.S. merchants acquired the valuable West India products of sugar and coffee, whereas American uh, foodstuffs and lumber were usually exchanged for ordinarily goods like molasses, which the U.S. market preferred allegedly neutral traders were suddenly keen to trade for luxury goods. Instead of reaching buyers in the United States, Stephan implied, these items were, be, were being ferried across the Atlantic on U.S. ships. The supposedly restricted trade was in fact continually as usual. Stephan noted that same situation after the renewal of the suspended British-French hostilities in 1803 with the start of the Napoleonic Wars. By 1805, he explained, the commercial and colonial interests of our enemies are now ruined in appearance only, not in reality. They seem to have retreated from the ocean and to have abandoned the ports of their colonies, but it is mere ruse de guerra. They have, in effect, for the most part, only changed their flags and chartered many vessels really neutral and altered a little the former roots of their trade. Their transmarine sources of revenue have not been for a moment destroyed by our hostilities and at a presence are scarcely impaired. The U.S. ships were willfully trying to deceive the British authorities by, according to Stephan, justified Britain's application of its wartime rights. It was Britain's patriotic duty to end the neutral carrying trade, and it would do so by stopping U.S. ships. Stephan exposed the transatlantic... and blockades disrupted trade along national lines. But in many instances, transatlantic restrictions also sent trade underground or in disguise and encouraged the kinds of transnational alliances that made national legislation less effective. Furthermore, the fraud of the flags, specifically French ships disguised as U.S. ships was not limited to vessels filled with Caribbean sugar and coffee. Even though neutrality applied to the United States in terms of 
Napoleonic Wars, importing enslaved Africans into the United States after 1808 violated U.S. law against the external slave trade. Thanks to the 1810 Amedia, decisions made by the British court, neutrality was thus a moot point and open suspected U.S. ships to seizure. The Charleston registered Amedia was, which has been seized on its way from Bonnie in West Africa to Man Mantaza, Mantaz, Cuba, with African captives, which ultimately condemned on grounds that the voyage contravened U.S. law. This decision on illegality rather than neutrality sent the precedent for subsequent British condemnations of allegedly neutral ships seized after 1807. To avoid the U.S.-U.K. restrictions, therefore American slavers would often employ the tricks of neutral carrying trade and sail under the colors of a country that had yet outlawed the transatlantic trade. In 1807, for example, the flags of choice were those of Spain, Portugal, and Sweden in order to continue the trade in enslaved Africans. So let's sum all of this up, guys. I know that was a lot. So America puts out this law in 1804, 1808. We're going to stop the importation of slaves from Africa into America. We're going to stop the in institution of importing slaves altogether, kidnapping people. We're, we're going to stand up and be the only nation that supports that. So then the American ships would start to change their flag when they would fly on the seas to go steal people. And they would say, nah, this is a Spanish ship. So it looked like Spain was, was further in the slave trade. Nah, this is a Portugal ship. So it looked like the Portuguese was fervent when all the time these were American ships. This is called the flag fraud. So you had these American ships still getting it popping, still stealing people. But remember, they were stealing people from different ports outside of the colonies, not necessarily Africa. So when they stole these people, they just say, yeah, these are Africans. They might have been free people from a state outside of the colonies in somebody else's kingdom because they called over there by Louisiana, so-called in Mexico, all that Spanish kingdom in Florida, La Florida, Granada was the last stronghold of the Moors. So now they're saying that America will run around acting like other nations were engaging in the slave trade when it was really an American ship. Because America had a past like, yo, we neutral. We ain't in the war, B, we ain't got no ops. So they would fly the flag of their ops. <laughs> so if they get caught, engaging in transport, transporting people, they could blame it on another nation. So basically America was starting wars with other nations by running around with other people's flag, which is crazy because I'll give you another account in history. You remember the, the, the riots in 92, the Rodney King riots and all that, the Watts riots, salute to all my people in Cali. Well, the Bloods and the Crips had a truce in 92, right? After the riots. Brothers was coming together, organizing. And what stopped the truce? This goes back to this false flag flying shit that they was doing when they was doing in the slave trade. America, they just kept recooking the same shit. So the Bloods and the Crips had a truce in 92, right? And that, that truce lasted until the police would lock up some of the top gang members, take their cars, ride around in the ops hood, and do a drive-by. So you thinking, dog, I thought we had a truce. 
But then you see Big Homie's car. Now I know that's the OG's car, and you think that the war's back on. So then the Bloods and the Crips never had a truce, and that shit was war ever since. Kind of why I think they had to do with getting rid of Nipsey. Salute, man. Salute to everyone that, that's family of Nipsey, man. Because it's crazy that Nipsey was supposed to be meeting with the, the L.A. Police Department and had something with Rock Nation to where they was trying to stop the violence in L.A. And then Nipsey gets killed and they blame that shit on gang violence. I think it's something more to that. Because that brother was trying to tap into the spirit of those gangbangers that initiated that truce in 92 after the Watts riots. See, they don't want us unifying they can't have us unifying. Oh, no, we can't have that. Because then now we become true opposition. True opposition to our oppression. This shit is crazy how you see the parallel and the correlation between the two. So American ships was running around flying flags of other countries, starting wars with other countries, acting like their hands was clean. You don't say that shit is crazy. I got to read that again. I'm going to read that sentence one more time. American slavers would often employ the tricks of neutral carrying trade and sail under the colors of a country that has not yet outlawed the transatlantic trade. In 1809, for example, the flags of choice were those of Spain, Portugal, and Sweden in order to continue to trade and enslave Africans. The African Institution, a London-based charity that focused on the abolition and the maintenance of the Sierra Leone colony, claimed in its fourth report of the directors in 1810 that the persons who are by far the most deeply engaged in this nefarious traffic of the slave trade, slave trade, slave trade appeared to be citizens of the United States of America. While flying foreign colors, U.S. ships have carried on their slave trade speculations during the last year to an enormous extent. During October 1809, the report noted, the coast of Africa was crowded with vessels known to be American, trading for slaves under Spanish and Swedish flags. Despite the abolition legislation, the report found U.S. ships are now the great carriers of slaves. In the suppression of the African slave trade in 1896, W.E.B. Du Bois cited the African Institutions in 1819 report, which explained the shift from the U.S. to the Spanish flag after the Amida decision. Ships bearing the American flag continued to trade for slaves until 1809, when in consequence of a decision in the English Prize Appeals Court, which rendered American ships liable to capture and condemnation. That flag suddenly disappeared from the coast. Its place was almost instantaneously supplied by Spanish flag, which with one or two exceptions, with now seemed to be the first time, now first seen for the first time on the African coast, engaged in covering the slave trade. This sudden substitution of the Spanish for the American flag seemed to confirm what was established in a variety of instances for more direct testimony that the slave trade, which now for the first time assumed a Spanish dress, was in reality only the trade of other nations in disguise. 
you don't say. This is a powerful book here, guys. Add this to your libraries. So I'm going to expound on some other stuff that they mentioned in the book, right? They mentioned this Fugitive uh, Slave Act. Let's look at what this Fugitive Slave Act is about. Because the Fugitive Slave Act puts this American government on the hot seat. That how was y'all fighting to stop slavery when y'all was putting laws on the books that was enforcing that shit? That was incentivizing it. What am I talking about? Let's take a look at this. Gotta qualify the history, right? Because history and law goes together. So you understand the, the ideologies of this country and administration after administration after administration. No matter who's in that seat, they're all still masking how they amass their wealth in this country. And to never compensate those that they fucking stole from. Those that they stole and stole from. So let's look at this right here. They had this act. And they enforced the, the Fugitive Slave Act, Article 4, Section 2 in the Constitution. Now, Article 4, Section Section 2 of the Constitution. Let's look at that real quick. Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution. That it, it speaks of your property, right? That, that, that basically, Article 4, Section 2, it speaks of if you commit a crime in one state, they extradite you. If you run to another state, they extradite you back to the state in which the crime happened, right? Now, that still happens today in America, right? Where, where let's say you, you committed a crime in Georgia and you went on the run and ran to Florida. And they lock you up in Florida, they're going to what? Extradite you back to Georgia where the crime started. So now, this is key when you're dealing with this Fugitive Slave Act. Because the Fugitive Slave Act was putting a lot of our free people into slavery. And this was started the Civil War. It wasn't about one side wanting to stop. and Man, everybody was trying to get money. And the North was only against slavery because the South had more votes. And if you had more votes, that means you got more seats in government. See what's going on? So now, the Fugitive Slave Act. The demand from the South for more effective legislation resulted in enactment of a second Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. Under this law, fugitives could now could not testify on their own behalf, nor were they permitted a trial by jury. Heavy penalties were imposed upon federal marshals who refused to enforce the law or from whom a fugitive escape penalties were also imposed on individuals who helped slaves escape. And that's the Underground Railroad. Finally, under the 1850 Act, special commissioners were to have concurrent jurisdiction within the U.S. courts in enforcing the law. The severity of the 1850 measure led to the abuse and defeat and defeated its purpose. The number of abolitionists increased, the operation of the Underground Railroad became more efficient, and new personal liberty laws were enacted. So now, the government used the U.S. Marshals to hunt down alleged slaves that were fugitives. But let's say, remember I, I spoke about, let's say you were already free, and I just said you was a slave, and I forced you into a contract that you didn't agree to. So now you might have ran because you were free. Man, I'm, I'm out of here. And you went to a state that wasn't practicing slavery. So now the government will use the U.S. Marshals to hunt you down like a fugitive when you were free the whole damn time. And if the marshal didn't hunt you down, they would fine the marshal $1,000 and imprison him for six months. See what the government was doing? This wasn't ind individual so-called white people. 
This was the government that was pushing this shit. So now, the, the, this is this would further the, the institution of the Underground Railroad, where there were a lot of people that were helping these people because it's like this. Imagine the government using the marshals to hunt down slaves, but they would incentivize everyday fucking citizens to report you. So now keep in mind, if they refer to slaves as all so-called black people, even if you was free, let's say this poor white wanted your land. All he had to do was go to the court and say, I think this nigga's a runaway slave. And then you couldn't testify on your own behalf. People didn't have trial by jury. So you didn't have a jury of your peers to, you know, fight your case or to vote on your case. They would convict you off top. So this why this war happened, because many of our people were free. We enlisted in the war to fight because the premise of fighting this war, we're going to end this shit. But they got into the war because it was about profit and it was about votes. Remember the three-fifth compromise? The three-fifth compromise was it was so many people populated in the southern states that the northern, the northern states was losing in terms of elections. So they had so many uh, people populated in the south, they said, man, three-fifths, every five of your slaves is considered three votes, considered to the union. See how this works? And this is why the South succeeded from the Union, because they like, nah, fuck all that. We want to keep our votes and our profits and our institution of slavery. So the North was only against it because the South had more votes and they could control the government. You see what's going on? That shit ain't have nothing to do with we got a heart and we got to free these people. Because remember, Lincoln never freed no people from Africa. The Emancipation Proclamation says free all such persons held in bondage because they was talking about any skin color. But they're not going to tell you about this white slavery, so they keep perpetrating this shit from Africa. But the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, statutes passed by Congress in 1793 to 1850 and repealed in 1864, just a year before 1865. See what's going on? So they would basically take all of these free people, declare them as slaves, and the government would enforce a law that says we can enslave you, even if you were free and you had no way to prove it. So keep in mind, if they were kidnapping all these so-called melanated people, all they had to do by way of your skin color, just say you were a slave. And it was harder for you to prove that you were free, free because you had to have freedom papers and then a judge had to honor your papers. But these so-called whites that ran from slavery too out of their contract, they could find somebody that, that, that would enforce their claim of them being free or buying their freedom. Because you could abort your freedom, move to a state that was free, and these marshals would get paid money to just round up free people and put them back into slavery. That's what furthered the war. This shit is crazy, yo. And, and, and they're not gonna make a movie on this because now it'll get the people to start looking at the government as a whole, at this administration as a whole, instead of us just taking our anger, anger out on every so-called white person thinking they own your people. When this government, this institution benefited off of them. And they're the ones that gotta make it right. For some time during the American Civil War, the Fugitive Slave Act was considered to still hold in the case of blacks fleeing from their masters and bordering states that were loyal to the Union government. It was not until June 28, 1864 that the act was repealed. All of this stuff is key. Now let's look at this Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad system existed in the northern states before the Civil War. 
by which escaped slaves from the South were secretly helped by sympathetic Northerners in defiance of the Fugitive Slave Act. See what's going on? People were against the Fugitive Slave Act, which means anybody could turn you in if somebody declared you as being a runaway. Even if you were a free person, just minding your goddamn business. Like I said, if this, if this poor white wanted your land, look at this nigga with all these acres, and this nigga might have slaves of his own. I want that nigga's land. So all he had to do was go to the court and make a claim that you was a runaway. Gotcha. And the U.S. Marshals would arrest you. That shit, crazy. Uh, though neither underground nor a railroad, it was thus named because its activities had to be carried out in secret, using darkness or disguise. And because railways, uh, railway terms were used in reference to the conduct of the system, various routes were lines, stopping places, were called stations. Those who aided along the way were conductors, and their charges were known as packages or freight. The network of routes extended in all directions through 14 northern states in the promised land of Canada, which was beyond the reach of most fugitive slave hunters. See, those fugitive slave hunters were U.S. Marshals. They don't show you this shit in the slave movies. We just see these fucking white dudes running with dogs and horses when these were federal agents. Why they never showed us this in these slave movies? Because then we would know who the op is. We would know who the op is, who the cause of your oppression. We're talking about government administrations <laughs> that still put laws on the books that disenfranchise one particular group of people. Got you in the street screaming, your life matters. But I thought murder was a crime. <laughs> we got to look at the tape again. What did he do? Well, the cop feared for his life, right? We have these arguments because they're still dealing with you as property of the government, wards of the state. So these lines, right, the, the railroads, uh, here we go, here we go. I don't want to skip nothing. I want to qualify everything for the record. Those who met, those, uh, hold on, to the promised land of Canada, where, which were beyond the reach of fugitive slave hunters, those who most actively assisted slaves to escape by way of the railroad were members of the free black community. See what's going on? People that were already free on the land. So how did they get here? Were they, were they people from Africa that end up buying land? Or were they melanated people that was already free on the land before this institution of slavery got started? We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. As, as Malcolm X said, as Martin Luther King said, the Negro finds himself in exile in his own land. Kicked out his own land. He didn't say Africa. He's talking about here. That's why those brothers were powerful. Because a lot of shit they said went over our heads. There were lines, stopping places were called stations, right? And goes on to say, those who most actively assisted slaves to escape by way of the railroad were members of the free black community, which including for some former slaves as Harriet Tubman, Northern abolitionists, philanthropists, and such church leaders as Quaker Thomas Garrett. Uh, Harriet, Harriet Beecher Stowe, famous for her novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, gained firsthand knowledge of the fugitive slaves through her contact with the Underground Railroad in Cincinnati, Ohio. So you had people of all colors that was helping out with this Underground Railroad because 
they lived among free people that were melanated people. They like, nah, that's you can't force people into slavery that was already fucking free. Like, what's going on? So it was people against it because it was the government forcing the people to keep it going. Forcing the people to reinstate this shit. Estimates of the number of black people who reached freedom varied greatly from 40,000 to 100,000. Although only a small minority of Northerners participated in the Underground Railroad, its, ex its existence did much to arouse Northern sympathy for a lot of the slaves in the antebellum period. Now you got many of these so-called white slaves that were in fraudulent contracts too that ran into their freedom. And the US Marshals was hunting down these white people too. North as a whole would never peaceably allow the institution of slavery to remain unchallenged. Now keep in mind, it was all about collectively, they got more votes than us in the South, which means they control more of the government. This shit was about business and position. So this Fugitive Slave Act, man, crazy stuff. The Fugitive, uh, here we go. There were people arrested for helping people along the... Uh, Underground Railroad. Sherman Booth was an abolitionist newspaper editor in Wisconsin who had been sentenced to jail by a federal court for assisting a runaway. They don't talk about this in the slave movies. A clear violation of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, which required, listen to this part, the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act required all Americans to cooperate in the capture and return of escaped slaves. So imagine people in the entire goddamn country all hunting you down to put you back into slavery. So you wasn't ducking a few slave catchers, you was, you was ducking the everyday population that the government was forcing to become slave catchers. They don't talk about this shit in them slave movies. All on purpose. Man. The 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, which required all Americans to cooperate in the capture and return of escaped slaves. Wisconsin, as well as several other northern states, however, had responded to the federal act by passing a personal liberty law, severely impeding enforcement by federal authorities of the Fugitive Slave Act, which in its borders. Remember, the states can enact its own law, too. See, the federal government was violating the state's law, their right to say, Nah, we're not doing that shit. That's inhumane. Or rather, it's illegal, my G. They was, use, they was using the government to enforce an institution of slavery. And on, and, and on the face, the government was saying, we're trying to fight and stop this institution of slavery. We have nothing to do with it. Yikes. History and law goes together, guys. We got we to gotta look at it that way and stop separating the two. Because if you don't study history... What's the saying? You're, de you're doomed to repeat it. That's just how this works. Powerful, powerful literature we just went over today. And, and, and as I said, they first enforced this Fugitive Slave Act off Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution. And it says, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. A person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime who shall flee from justice or be found in another state shall, on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled, be delivered upon up, be delivered up to be removed 
to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. No person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up upon claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. So they used Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution to enforce their fraudulent fucking slave contracts. Slavery's rooted in this government and that's what we got to be looking at this is why we can't let this conversation of reparations go on go on ahead they got to make this shit right because they implemented policy that made sure they would amass profit by selling people and they acting like they had nothing to do with it even when they try to blame slavery on all these other nations these other nations kept ship records. They talked about these American ships that they seized that was flying French flags and British flags acting like they was other nations and they was running around transporting people. Our history is truly world history, i.e. American history. No such thing as black history because when they call it black history, it's more like hidden history, unknown history. That's what that black represents, but it doesn't represent a people leave you with that famous quote from Dr. John Henry Clark there's nothing wrong with the word black nothing at all just doesn't translate to a land, language or people the proper name of a people must always relate to land history and culture I didn't say Cleopatra was black I infer. I quoted someone else who inferred that that's one of my favorite quotes from Dr. John Henry Clark because when they show you these people with black skin, you keep thinking their skin is black. That's a description. That doesn't denote to a nationality, a national origin. And that's on purpose. They keep telling you they took you from Africa, but it's 52 nations in Africa. Why don't you know which one they took you from? Why haven't these nations spoke up on your behalf in terms of this reparation conversation? Because they stole a lot of the people from the land they were already living on reclassifies you as a foreign African that never can get back home that has no rights right because remember during Katrina they referred to our people as refugees refugees like people from another land seeking asylum not a, a fucking citizen of the place where, where Katrina happened really they referred to the people in the Superdome as refugees and keep in mind during Katrina thousands of people went missing Talking about that sex trade, that organ harvesting shit. Yeah, that's real. That's that ugly truth we don't want to talk about. But I'm telling you, the more we dig, we find where the bones are buried. And I'm not coming from a place of hatred. I'm trying to come from a place of understanding and overstanding. So we all can get to this ultimate truth of making this shit right. We're not going to just keep disrespecting our people like this shit ain't happened but y'all keep making millions of dollars off another fraudulent slave movie but you ain't talking about your government enforcing this institution of slavery you keep making it seem like this is these pockets of fucking white people that just was running around like renegades not so my g that was all cap i am your host jf bay this is the third eye high podcast we deal with a higher consciousness of a flyer culture and I'm just here to shine my light your way to help you find your light switch and keep your light lit. This is the book series. This has been another 
wonderful installment. I encourage you to add this book to your library, Warring for America, The Cultural Contest in the Era of 1812 by Nicole Estes and Farika Tutti. I want to shout out some of my listeners, give thanks for everyone tuning in because you spent your most, you spent your most valuable currency paid attention. I spent my sweat equity by giving up my time to qualify this scholarship. So that's an equal exchange of compensation, right? I give thanks for your donations. You can donate in the following ways. You can support and subscribe to the podcast, Third Eye High on all podcast streaming platforms. You could comment about the podcast. You could share the link to the podcast. You want to send a monetary donation? You can hit my cash app, dollar sign far out flow, F A R O U T F L O W. Dollar sign far out flow is my cash app. But as I said, you paid attention. You spent your most valuable currency. So either way, I'm compensated. I don't do this for the likes, I do this for the love. A shout out to some of my listeners. Mr. Two Extra, thanks for tuning in, bro. Dr. Robert, uh, Greg, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Shamar, Carla. Black Pearl, Daryl, thanks for tuning in. Mary Ann, uh, Reggie Wood, thanks for tuning in. Sonny, Cecilia Grace, thank you for always tuning in, sister. Uh, Brian, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Nerd Chatbox, uh, uh, Sunia, Michael J, thanks for tuning in, bro. Uh, Sharente Carr, Zen Master, Anthony uh, Boner, Anthony Bonner, uh, Miranda May, Glory, uh, oh, Glotty. Sorry to butcher the name, guys. I am a 420 enthusiast. Uh, Jason Kente, uh, Zenith, uh, Colina, Saduku Moff, thank you for tuning in. Lois Hampton, uh, Daquan McKnight, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Bob uh, Hardone, Christy Taylor, Wendy, thank you for tuning in. Frankie J, Jason, uh, Deo. Christopher, thank you for tuning in. And everyone tuning in to the Third Eye High podcast at large. I couldn't do this without you, you know, because we are all here and what ties us together is universal truth. Until next time, this is the Third Eye High podcast. We deal with a higher consciousness of a flyer culture. There is nothing wrong with your system. We are attempting to decalcify your third eye. Here at the Third Eye High podcast, we definitely deal with a higher consciousness with a higher culture, a flyer consciousness with a higher culture. And I'm your host, JF Bay, and I'm just here to shine my light your way to help you find your light switch and keep your light lit. And until next time, and always keep your third eye high. Peace, love, and more light. Give thanks.